just call you crazy. I guess the other half is round, round, Some say it's Bigfoot. Some say it's one of the craziest conspiracies out there. Double down on this one. It's a she-squatch. Some say it's a Rocky Mountain Sasquatch. Some say it's Bigfoot carrying a monkey on his back. Some say it's a Rocky Mountain Sasquatch. Some say it's Bigfoot carrying a monkey on his back. These beings have been described as enormous and covered. Folks, welcome to the show, Exile Minds Podcast. Me, Liam Martin. Thanks for joining us. So today, ooh, 24th of December, or at least for me, Saturday, 24th of December, 2022, four minutes past two a.m. Mm-hmm. A late night one for me. Super duper late night. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's all good. I just want to drop a show before Christmas keep the momentum going and all that so yeah so today right got a show so i did a did a bit of a kind of christmasy show in a way about santa claus and it reminded me of um i had a show that i'd been sort of partially planning before i have these ideas got a bit of a list of uh shows that i thought might be good topics to 
to cover sort of thing so yeah little people got me thinking because i did the uh, sort of santa claus and the elves thing so i thought yeah got the little people show I got a bit further than, than the elves because it went a particular direction with the elves to talk the DMT elves and stuff. The Santa Claus show, the previous, uh, went another direction still. So I thought, hey, you know, let's have a look. This is a little people's story. See, it's even in legends about that stuff because, of course, I'm from Britain, got the fairy folk, you know, garden gnomes and that kind of thing. So I thought, yeah, let's see what's, see if that's a thing. So I thought, the premise of this show today is uh yeah let's have a look at um the little people little people myths of mini humanoids throughout the world is this is because there's like, kind of like lost chapters in history i think so i'm into ancient archaeology and stuff i just think yeah i reckon there's lo plenty of lost chapters plenty of evidence for it at least lost civilizations so i think well can't, can't they be lost peoples then that was different to us back in the day perhaps been many iterations you know, we've wiped out a lot of animals. So it's like, well, maybe people have been wiped out, got supplanted. So, yeah, maybe they, some of these little people are for real. Or, or they were. And that's the thing. So I thought in today's show, we'll explore that. Folklore surrounding the little people. Have a look at some of the legends. Uh, commonplace throughout the world. Turns out. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it is all over the world. And, uh, yeah. I thought we'd just take a journey, look of discovery down a rabbit hole where one thought makes you big, the one makes you small, you know. Go and see what's uh, see what's going on down there. So, is it a widespread notion? It does seem to be, but let's see how, how widespread it goes. Because no, so you got it in Britain, so you know. We'll see what are the tales telling us. The tales can give us a gives a bit of information about them, can't they? And sometimes you know. The place name is is because of a story. I always think it's funny that you get so many places called like Devil's Creek or Devil's Pass or Devil's Canyon, and you think, mm. <laughs> it's just the big "don't go there" sign. But yeah, is there anything to indicate some of this folklore might be based in something true? Is there some truth to any of this? So I want to look at today, and is indeed there any evidence? So. Let's have a look then. Let's have a deep dive. So first up, let's get uh, let's get this article up. So article on a Atlas Obscura. We've got this this mysterious this uh, article from the thirty first of October two thousand thirteen, written by uh, Jeremy Fulberg. So let's say that's on a Atlas Obscura, and we've got the headline. The Mysterious Pedro Mountain Mummy. Thirty-one days of is like from a Halloween session. Thirty-one days of Halloween. I'm screwing this month. Da -da -da, celebrating Halloween. Da -da. Okay, so we've got this mummy, the Pedro Mountain Mummy. Two prospectors were looking for gold, and a shot of dynamite seemed like a good start. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, blow things up. That's the way to do things. It was the summer of 1934 in central Wyoming. Cecile Maine and Frank Carr set a charge in a glut at the foot of point at the foot. Get my teeth in. They set a charge in a glut at the foot of a high point in the Pedro Mountains that stripped down the east side of the Pathfinder Reservoir. 
The explosion ripped open the earth and revealed a cave. Maine crawled into the cave, a small place, almost a coat closet tipped over. It's a little, little box. There he found a, a rock ledge about two and a half feet above the ground. No gold. Duh. The cave was empty, except for a mummy. Mummified remains. It looked like a small, wizened man sitting on the ledge. His eyes closed, arms crossed. His feet tucked under him. His skin was brown and dried by the arid Wyoming climate. His mouth was drawn into a placid scowl. A lean Buddha with a misshapen head. So, yeah. So have a look at this picture for those on the, on the video there. Yeah. Yeah, it's like sitting in a bit of a meditative position there. Arms kind of crossed. Yeah, look, we've got a bit of a resting face. Okay, let's carry on with the article. It was tiny, perhaps six and a half inches tall or so, sitting down. It weighed just about a pound. Main and Carr may not have known it at the time, but they held a real treasure in their hands. The Pedro Mountain Mummy made the rounds. Two years later, a sworn statement by Maine shows the mummy belonged to Homer F. Sherrill. At some point, it was owned by Floyd Jones, who had a drugstore in Wyoming town of Mititsi. A young basketball player who visited the town at the time later recalled seeing the mummy in a drugstore window. Jones sold postcards of the mummy to bring some additional cash. It was a sideshow attraction, as, a, as you can imagine. So these people have seen it and wrote about it. Eyewitness accounts and cards and postcards and stuff. So yeah, in 1936, uh, a young Eugene Bashaw convinced his father to pay the 25 cents for his son to see the mummy. So it says, uh, it says here, that rushed... Uh, rushed look at the mummy was the first, so you know, paid 25 cents, quick 25 cents tour, not even the 50 cents tour. So, yeah, <laughs> probably just a quick flash, lift the curtain up, put it back down. <laughs> so, the rushed look at the mummy was the start of uh, Bashaw's lifelong search for more information about it. Okay, so a nice picture there in the jar, get some kind of idea of the sort of sizing of it. The mummy was a tale from. It said, but but the mummy tale was far from over. Eventually, it made its way to Ivan Goodman, a car dealer in Casper, not far from where the mummy was discovered. He showed off the mummy, but now seated atop a wooden base topped by a tall inverted glass jar. I guess that's the picture we saw. Almost as if the mummy was on in a cake display. It just kind of looked. It is one of them kind of things. Yeah, like a cake display. Okay. At some point, the mummy got x-rayed. Well, I've done some testing on it then. The images proved the mummy wasn't a fake. Ooh, okay. As soon as they hit it with a sign, an x-ray. That's... Oh, okay. Its flesh stretched over the skeleton with visible vertebrae, rib cage, an arm, and leg bones. Goodman featured the mummy in car advertisements and apparently offered for display by others. The hype poster barked the claims, it's educational, it's scientific, 
it will amaze and thrill you. It's a pygmy preserved as if actually alive. The poster featured photos of the mummy and the x-rays of it. From left to right, Goodman's name was at the end of the tale. With a blank line and filled in by whoever is displaying the mummy. So this pygmy was 65 years old when it dried, as the poster claimed. That wasn't actually true, it says here. But it was a fascinating story, one that could sell. Okay, so try and make it like it's an old man that's small or something. Alright, it's made that bit up. There's him holding it. Oh, there's Casper. That's a good little shot, actually. The X-rays, though, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's... that's, that's it's, it's quite enthralling to sit and think about, really. That you, get, that you can find a tiny, tiny little person sort of thing. And then you've got to think it's not real when you find it, surely. You know, I've, I had a moment where I saw a, saw a cat from a distance. But the way it was sat and the light, and it was in broad daylight as well, it looked, it was black and white cat and it had a white, white chest. But it was on a corner, and behind was a bit of a mud bank, and there should have been a hedge there, but there was a bit of a hole in this mud bank behind it. And the way it framed it, and the way the mud was, and the shadows, it looked just like a little man in like a tuxedo with a top hat, you know, <laughs> like the size of a cat. And as I was getting close, I was getting freaked out as I was getting closer, like, no way. <laughs> There's not a little man in a tuxedo with a top hat, like a foot high, there can't be. <laughs> It's trick of the eye. It would be a bit freaky. Yeah, the firm one, and it's x-rayed it. It's got the bones, so it's a bit weird. Anyway, far out, but that's what we've got on with the article. Okay, so, also, it's saying it's in a jar. It's also an item that could be stolen. The one with, yeah, it's stealable because it's small, you know, especially putting in a nice case as well. It's going to preserve it. You just grab that, swipe it. So, yeah, it's also... It could be stolen. The one was lost about 1950. It's not clear how. The press reports vary. Some claim Goodman took the mummy to New York City and lost it to a con man. Others say he sold it. Others say the mummy just vanished. Years later, University of Wyoming physical anthropologist George Gill picked up on the story, reportedly from his students. He says it's likely the mummy was an infant suffering from, oh, what's this word? Anasyphilia. Anasyphilia, that would do. Oh, I wonder if uh, we'll get the computer to read it. Will Hazel be able to hustle this one? There we go, let's try it. Hazel, no, yes, no, yes, no. Oh, I'll try, oh, I've got to. <laughs> Give us some volume. What is this word? Encephaly. An encephaly. Are you sure? That doesn't seem right. An encephaly. An encephaly. Okay. <laughs> he says it's like the moment was an infant suffering from an encephaly. <laughs> oh, forget that. A defect that means that a fetus doesn't develop major proportions of the brain. Okay, so that's trying to account for the head deformity. The mummy wasn't a pygmy. It wasn't an old man, as they sort of made up in the beginning. 
It was an infant born with a birth defect, almost always fatal. Unusually, it was buried in a cave in a seated position atop a ledge. So that is a bit, is a bit wild, that. Yeah, the moment we sparked, sparked the legends of the little people. See, yeah, this is where, this is where I, I was interested in this. For is, you know, hit that little people term, you know, little folk. So, tales of race of uh, tiny human beings described by the Indian legends of Wyoming. Okay, so they've already got tales of that stuff there. And then they find one that could be it. All right. Plot thickens. It's possible buried mummies such as the Pedro Mountain mummy might have started and sustained such legends. Okay, so that could have kicked off the legend, but then again, who are they? See, it's, it's not... Do you know what I mean? It's like that sort of hinting at, oh, maybe finding them got people thinking legends of little people. Yeah, but they are little. And if you're finding lots of them, then it just kind of stands to reason, doesn't it? So... Anyway, in 2005, John Adolfi, John Adolfi of uh, Syracuse, New York, offered $10,000 reward for the mummy, claiming it would disprove evolution. Yet the mummy stayed hidden. Since Gil first heard of the Pedro Mountain mummy, he served as something of a, a living archive of the news and knowledge. Someone once brought him what they thought was a valuable mummy head. Girl's research showed it was just an interestingly carved and dried hunk of vegetable matter. <laughs> oh, look here. Let's put his quids in there. But no, it's turnip. <laughs> Sorry, Doc. Dan Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> He st it still has that in uh, cotton tucked into a, a clear globe. Gil thought the Pedro Mountain mummy was gone, but he says he recently learned that the mummy may be okay somewhere safe, but he won't say any more. Ooh, ominous. The search goes on. Yeah, maybe somebody swept it away because some of these institutions perhaps might want to hide it. Who knows? <laughs> I could point fingers, but we'll leave that. Okay, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so you've got this uh, misshapen head. It's kind of like a bit as if you kind of squashed your head a bit and it went pointed out at the sides. Like a bit, yeah. It's strange. This is a strange one. So we've got that there, the mummy of San, San Pedro Mountains from that uh, article there. Alta Obscuria, Atlas Obscuria.com, so yeah. That's a bit of an unusual one, but I thought I'll go on and see if there's any, uh, see if there's any more then, because that was a bit strange. Like I say, currently it looks as if it's sort of missing, might be with some collector. Like I say, maybe they're trying to preserve these things, because if I had loads of money, I'd want to get these oddities and try and save them and, you know, and research and kind of make sure they don't get dumped in the ocean by some alphabet agency, just, you know. Because some universities freaking it might undo stuff, because that, that that kind of thing happens. But anyway, next up, we've got the pygmy graves in Idaho. So when they say pygmy, I think uh, I don't know if they're necessarily referring to the people called pygmy. I mean, it might be a sort of generic term for like small people. I mean, we might say the little people or the fairy folk or dwarfs. 
I don't know. That's what I'm going to presume in this. But anyway, this article. Pygmy Graveyard in Idaho. It was posted the 13th of December 2001 by uh, uh, Denver Michaels. So, as the story goes, in the past, much attention has been devoted to the discoveries of um, diminutive skeletons in the ground uh, around a white country, Tennessee, during the 1800s, collectively known as the Tennessee Pygmies. The tiny finds have the share of uh, detractors, as well as a few folk, such as myself, that believe the mysteries uh, warrant a closer look. What most folk familiar with the subject may not realise is that small or pygmy skeletons have been, re have been recovered elsewhere, such as Kentucky and Iowa. So Tennessee, Kentucky and uh, so Iowa. The Gentleman's Magazine ran a piece about a pygmy graveyard in the antiqu antiquarian news section of the August 1837 issue. So it's been reported back in the day. See, that, that's that sort of 1837 to 1860s kind of period of time. That, you know, the mid-1800s in America. There's quite a few finds that come up there. That's where you get some of the... Uh, giant bones and giant axes and stuff that they found in that sort of time. So there was some weird stuff being found. And there's, you know, there's a lot of legends. So it's fun to think about. Anyhow, moving on. So, right, where are we? So this is from the uh, the magazine, for the, the Gentleman's Magazine, for Matt Antiques. Okay, so a, a short distance from... Chuck Cochuk Cotton, Iowa, uh, US, a singular ancient uh, burying ground has lately been uh, a, a singular ancient burying ground has lately been discovered. It is situated, says a writer in Silliman's journal, on one of those elevated, gravely alluvian, so common on the west of the rivers. Some of the remains of the wood still apparent on the earth around the bones. The bodies seem to have all been deposited in coffins. And, and what's more still curious is the fact that the bodies buried here were generally no more than three to four and a half feet in length. Okay. They're very numerous. That's not super small, is it? So three, three feet to four and a half feet. Okay, still sm small people. Not that equal tiny like the other one, is it? But it's just small people. So, legit. Let's check it out. They are very numerous. So they've found lots and lots of them. Uh, must have been tenants of a, a considerable sitter. Oh, enough to see. Okay. That, that many numerous. Or the numbers could have... Uh, not been so great. Yeah, so they must have had a big set because they found enough to... Okay, all right. A large number of graves have been opened. The, the inmates. 
the inmates of which are all of this uh, pygmy race. No metallic articles or utensils have yet been found to throw light on the period of the nations to which they belonged. Hmm. That was um, that was from the gentleman. This is a, another reporting from the Centennial History of, of Costatong County, Iowa, published in 1909. They write, the earliest accounts of speaking, you know, I'll share the page. The earliest accounts of, of speak of the mounds regarding even the Indian days as structures of remote antiquity. The missionary Zeisberger noted 133 years ago the numerous signs of an ancient race here. Okay, so he's saying only 133 years ago. So this is in 1909. Yeah, so it's... Yeah, so then they're talking like the late 1700s. Hmm, the late 17th century. Yeah, yeah, so... Wow. That's not that long ago, is it? Anyway. So your mission is 133 years ago. Numerous signs of an ancient race here. He refers particularly to the cemetery containing thousands of graves near the mound three miles south of Kostukton. The skeletons reduced to chalky ash. So the skeletons reduced chalky ashes were three feet, again, to four feet and a half in height. Same, yeah, four and a half feet in height. Okay. Smaller than Indian or mound skeletons. These pygmies have led to much conjecture. Thus far, no definite conclusions is recorded of any of the notices of the ancient cities of the dead. The bibliography of Iowa earthworks prepared for the Smithsonian Institution includes the notice of Howe's historical collections, quoted from Dr. Hildreth's description of Silliman's journal from 1835. This also mentions an ancient cemetery of pygmies near St. Louis. Okay. There are skeletons were found uh, stone sepulchres. Okay. They found stone sepulchres. Well, it seemed to also be uh, wooden coffins. Discovery of the pygmies graves on the Keen Bethlehem Township line is credited to J.C. Milligan. Hildreth relates, uh, relates that one of the Kostatons' graves was found a skeleton five and a half feet long with decaying pieces of oak and iron nails. Okay. The skull was tri triangular in shape, much flattened at the sides and the back, though not with a slant brow or flathead Indians as Indians seen in the West. The hole pierced in the back of the skull. The hole pierced the back of the skull. The bones were displaced. The skull being found with the pelvis from which herein the body was dismembered before burial. In the St. Louis Cemetery found among the pygmies one skeleton of rather large development, though not taller than the rest. The legs were cut off at the knees and placed alongside the thigh bones. Mm. 
Michener tells the, the Nakikok tribes of the Maryland, drying the bones of the dead and carrying them in wrappings from place to place as generation after generation sought new hunting grounds and that eventually their ancestral bones found a final resting place at the valley of Costaton when the last of the tribes became too weakened by war to move farther. This tradition was credited to a Nanticoke convert who was with Zyberger, but it meets with scepticism, which has observed the uncertainty of the Indian memory of how commonly Indian traditions die out, as for instance as those southern tribes, as for instance the southern tribes who retained no recollection whatsoever of DeSoto's expedition. Okay, so I suppose it's, yeah, yeah, the same. I suppose that's kind of muddy in the waters a bit for me. It's a bit like saying, oh, well, maybe the, oh, I don't know. It's a bit like, for me, that's a bit, it's a bit wordy and it's a bit, I know it's written years ago, but it's a bit like saying, oh, well, you might, they might have forgot or, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe you can't take them seriously. I don't know, it just feels a bit, ooh. Anyway, I'd skip past this bit. Yeah, so so yeah, the the fandom in in several places. Then, so, this, so that was that was from nineteen oh nine. Let's just skip to the end here. It's quite a long article. I know it's mentioned. This. Yeah, okay. So a statement appears in uh, Graham's history of Costaquon uh, County that the Moravians minister from Pennsylvania visited ancient uh, cemetery here and remarked a custom among the Moravians of burying the old in separate rows from the young. That's kind of... That's curious, isn't it? Okay, separating. While this would explain the uniform smallness of the Moravians' graves, it does not explain the absence um, the absence uh, from the missionaries' records of any considerable mortality among the younger or even, for a matter of fact, the elder members of the Moravian mission. So this is the same, well, they found some small graves of the other people in Pennsylvania, but they assumed that that was because, you know, they're, they're burying the adults and children kind of in separate rows, so they must all be children. But then they've got no records of saying, well, I'd, you know, they found this grave full of small... You know, small coffins. They're assuming they must have all been kids, but they ain't got any records of saying a load of kids die. Or anyway, yeah. So I seen that, and I thought mm, I have to pull on that thread a bit. So yeah, I mean, don't know. Don't know what to make of it. So I thought, with these Moravians, let's uh, <laughs> let's check these out. Then it's Pennsylvania pygmies, the Moravians. They, they, I mean, they're within Wikipedia as well. I'd never heard of them. But then, then sort of Wikipedia is just like, you know, it's regular people. And I'm thinking, well, what is this? Are they just, is it, you know, I'll get this Wikipedia page up. Oh, yeah, just, just like regular people, just like a, an order of the church. This is our lamb has, you know, our lamb has conquered. That's like, let's, let us follow him. Just like a church order, you know? So we'll check into them and see what, see what they're saying. The Moravians. 
don't know if I've seen that right. Moravians or Unitas Fratum, the United Brethren, uh, uh, German-speaking Protestants. So it's like, well, didn't seem anything, anything super special. They just seem like a regular order. The origins from uh, 1457. So I don't know. Was it like a? I don't know. Were they protected then? Was it part of the church? These little people. I don't know. I just thought it was a curious link that there's an actual church order of some of these people from the from the Pennsylvania graves. What's going on here? What's going on? So then, so then, I don't know. Let's go on to read a bit more about these then from Wikipedia. I'll say you can look these look these things up. I was I'll have the links in the description, of course. So you can look at this for yourself. So that's why that's why the point of this is got to share each other's ideas, aren't we? See what we can find. Yeah, it says this, this is um, yeah, it's a Protestant group. Then it says it's one of the oldest Protestant denominations in Christianity, dating back to the Bohemian Reformation of the 15th century and the unity of the brethren. So it's like founded in the Kingdom of Bohemia 60 years before Luther's Reformation. The church's heritage can be traced to 1457 in Bohemian Crown territory, including the Crown Islands of Moravia and Silesia, which saw the emergence of the Hussite movement against several practices and doctrines of the Catholic Church. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that might be why they've disappeared. <laughs> Went up against... However... Its name is derived from exiles who fled from the Bohemia to Saxony in 1722 to escape the Counter-Reformation, establishing the Christianity community of Herodot, hence since it was also known in German as a Hernhuter. Hernhuter. Okay, you need to see the brethren. Hmm, looking at the timeline, just a curious spitballing thought here, but looking at the timeline, then I kind of make it look like maybe there was this church, maybe there were these little people, maybe they're part of the church, then some reformation comes along and they've gone after them and they might have annoyed him in the past. Maybe they just decided there was witches or imps or, oh, no, you, just, you know what I'm saying? It'd be a bit like, uh, who's tall, like this, this sh people that are taller than other types of people in the world, isn't it? So it's like, it'd be like just picking on them and going, oh no. What are you about? I don't know. Wonder. Just curious. You know, like an excuse, especially if they've gone up against them. Maybe there was some fundamental philosophical difference that threatens them. I don't know. Ooh. Mm, scary. Anyway. <laughs> so next then. So, so next, I thought, what about some other strange encounters, little people? In fact, in fact, let me just... Uh, I've got another one coming up next is literally I like this one because they're uh, from Britain there's a TV show called Red Dwarf and I didn't realise there's actual things called Red Dwarfs which we've got from a mysterious universe let's get this link up and I'm just going to pop some music on make a quick drink back in a like I don't know 120 odd seconds ish <laughs> but yeah I'll put, I'm going to put some music on just for just for a couple of minutes and then um I'm gonna make my son a drink and we'll get to this we'll get to this strange encounters with mysterious people of Detroit. So I don't know. Check it out, I suppose. But anyway, yeah. 
I'm just gonna just gonna quickly pop some music on, make a quick drink, and then uh, we're back in a sec. On the Examines podcast, Liam Martin. Couple of minutes, not be long. Awesome. Welcome back to the XR Minds podcast. Me, Liam Martin. Today, 24th December, 2022. I carry on with these uh, articles about uh, little people. It'd be fun, this one. It's uh, got got another one in Detroit. So, yeah, we've got a few more. Bass room now. So that, that one of them, <laughs> that article from back in the day was taking it as long. They really worded the way they do stuff. Anyway. Yeah, so let's check this then. Let me share this with you. So Detroit, more strange cancers, mysterious people. Right, oh, okay, what's this? Oh, some playing in the background. That's all good. Right then, there we go then. So, strange cancers, mysterious little people of Detroit. Question mark. So we're here for questions. Dig into things. Right then, as I mentioned, yeah. So throughout the world, there's been you know nearly every culture. Tales of little people. Okay, so that's how it starts the article. You know, like we've mentioned, we've got theories, gnomes, elves. I think you know, tiny, strange people in folklore. It's like, what is this? So we've got one here. It says, uh, it says uh, in this uh, mysterious universe article. Far from merely a bit of folklore, there have been actual sightings of these beings dating back from before European settlement all the way up to the modern day. Mysterious little people of Detroit are one of those more bizarre stories of such creatures out there. The tale has its origins with the Ottawa tribe, which inhabited the area that would then become Detroit, Michigan in the United States and revolves around the curious entities known as the Nain Rouge, or Red Dwarf. Contrary to the image one may have of Detroit today, 
This was once an untamed wilderness, populated by all manner of spirit folk of Native American legend. And Michigan. Well, I, I do believe as well. I don't know. In Michigan, it's got a big lake, isn't it? A bit water, water portals. Portals and water kind of tying together. If you kind of look into it, it seems to somehow... It's a bit of a thing. I mean, a little group, a trouble minds group people would talk to. But yeah, and Stargate, think of Stargate. That's a literal water portal, right? But anyway, moving on. So yeah, American Age. Yeah, Michigan. I don't know, I just wonder. Because I think there's PowerPoints where some of these sort of... The veil is thinner, you know? Where there's points on the earth where I think things are more likely to be magical, let's say. Like those mysterious places that you get. In there a place in America where it's, everything's supposed to go a bit backwards, like gravity's wrong or something. But anyway, yeah, you get these things. Magnetic anomalies and stuff. But anyway, untamed wilderness used to be around Michigan area. And you've got the, uh, the Nain Rouge that used to live there, or maybe still do. It was said to indeed be mischievous, uh, as many suppose the little folk and other traditions often think of them as mischievous, but also as protectors of the land. Powerful nature spirits that are caretakers of the earth. With the coming of the first French settlers, the newcomers to the land brought their own visions of the mythology from their homelands, of course, yeah. So if you've, yeah, gonna, gonna project your own, um, your own folklore, if you see any, do you see any sightings. Yeah, known for these ends. They had one and then the French settlers called Lutin. So these were the red dwarfs they were calling them Lutin then, if they'd seen them. So, the French settlers are carrying on with the article. So French settlers uh, are fairy-like entities known as the Lutin, which had its origins in uh, Normandy. The Lutin were long considered to be mean-spirited trickster spirits, prone to prankish behaviour, seemed to fit perfect, the, for the strange gnomes of the natives, the two traditions became intertwined. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, actually. Yeah, you've already got a legend there that matches one that you've got from home. Gonna kind of call it that, aren't you? Gonna get mixed together. And when you meet, meet natives, they might take on the name of your thing. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. Cultures blend, all right. A nice image there. Looking a little bit is okay. So you kind of red dwarf, red. Kind of got horns though, and pointy teeth. So it looked a bit devilly, but yeah, looks definitely looks a bit dwarf-like as well. Or Nomi, his big beard, plaited together too. Practical. <laughs> Maybe he's a I don't know if I'm stereotyping is going to upset with me. Maybe he's like a dwarf type. Has to do mining, tie his beard together, make sure I don't get caught. I don't know. Maybe he's doing labour. Who knows? But anyway, moving on. <laughs> so you got yeah, it's a nice image of that there, mythological creature. There's a thought to be a uh, European settlers thought that they were um, mostly benevolent forest entities, and that's how I think of it. Being European, that's how I think of these things like sprites or wisps, or the kind of like wood elves, aren't they? The protectors of the land. I think that's sort of the job. I suppose I'm thinking of them a bit like elementals, but but I don't know, maybe like minions for the elementals, like little torpers for them. Anyway, 
Benin Rouge were described as a small child-sized humanoids with red old man faces, glowing eyes, jagged and yellow rotten teeth and dressed in worn down clothes, pointed hats and furry boots. Sometimes without clothing and covered in a matted reddish brown hair. There's a bit of a far out one there, but then there's like accounts of it. It was this, um, the founder of Detroit said he's seen one. So I thought, so this is the you know, story that got my attention. The founder of Detroit uh, claims, what was his name? is uh, Antoine de la Motte Cadillac. That will be where Cadillac comes from then. One of the earliest such reports, yeah, from starts in 1701, March the 10th, 1701. A fan of Detroit said it's seen one. So let's uh, <laughs> let's have a look then. I'm just going to zoom in a bit. Oh, bit far. Zoom in for the video. So yeah, we're like 1701. Just highlight that there. Da -da -da. Right, yeah, so the story goes with this guy. He was, oddly enough, before he had his encounter, he had another odd encounter, he had a mysterious fortune teller, allegedly appeared with a cat on his shoulder, as you do, a cat on your shoulder, parrot on the other one, if she's got a boyfriend. But anyway, pirate and a fortune teller. That'd be, oh, that'd be the fun they'd have. But anyway, yeah, so it, it gets March the 10th, 1701. Founder of Detroit, Antoine de la Motte Cadillac, was approached by a, a mysterious fortune teller with a cat on the shoulder. And uh, she reads his poem and tells him he was destined to start a great city, but this new colony would be, uh, you know, be like uh, hit with great strife and bloodshed. She warned him to pay heed to the Nain Rouge and not to upset it, uh, or it would certainly mean his downfall. But he was sceptical to this, and mostly scoffed at it. Okay. When the Cadillac finally did a, he did find his sitter. Okay. Reportedly went out with his wife one night, a quiet walk overhead. Two men complain overheard two men complaining about the new city. One of them saying. Uh, he had seen a La Petite Nana Rouge, you know, the little red dwarf, which was a sure sign of bad things to come. Oh, okay, so he's got his nice new sitter, and he can hear people going, oh, no, just, but, you know, I've seen a bad omen. It's not good. At the time, this amused Cadillac, but soon after, he reported that a deformed dwarf-like creature covered in a blackish-red fur and with a beady, fierce red eyes shambled into view and it had a crooked horrendous teeth crooked teeth just like the description said Cadillac allegedly bashed the foul creature over the head with a cane and told it to go away but the fierce that's the last thing you want to do you were told as well be nice to him bash him over the head with your cane <laughs> you get charged <laughs> Anyway, the first and them just laughed and scampered off. <laughs> I laughed for two. After Cadillac was supposedly beset by a, a myriad of misfortune after that, eventually dying alone and penniless. So, 
totally came true. Okay, we've got another report. Creature spotted multiple times. Uh, same time, a frightened farmer claiming that he'd seen one on his roof barn, rattling up the horses, uh, peering through his windows, stealing his chickens. Oh, what a little... Nope. I don't know. Chupacabra-like behaviour, that is. It's unbecoming of a dwarf. Anyway. Yeah, so the beasts on the 30th of July, 1763. On this day, 250 British troops had amassed in preparation for a surprise attack on a rebel force made up of a confederacy of Native Americans that had defied British post-war policy. How dare you? How, how dare you? I've got my sample. I'm not going to do it, though. <laughs> defying, <laughs> defying British post-war policies in an insurgent uprising known as Pontiac's War, named after one of the fiercest leaders of the Ottawa, Chief Pontiac. Oh, nice, nice little picture there. That's a nice bit of art there. I like that. The war itself had developed into a brutal and ruthless campaign. So, yeah, the fighting, lots of blood. Yeah, okay. So, I was surprised to find a large contingent of 400 angry Native American warriors waiting for them and ready to fight. The ensuing battle would drive the British back and said to be so bloody and vicious that the creek ran red with blood, changing its name to a Bloody Run. Nearly 60 British soldiers died in the melee, including the commander for Sir Captain James Delier whose corpse was decapitated so that the head could be paraded around on a stick for all to see. Eyewitnesses, included many of the soldiers themselves, were claimed that they had seen one of the Nen Roos sitting upon the banks of the creek before the battle, as if claiming a front row seat and waiting with glee to witness the carnage. In the aftermath of the fighting, the fearsome little dwarf was then allegedly witnessed to frolic and dance amongst the corpses that littered the ground and to wade about in the bloodstained waters of the creek. The creature's demeanour was described as being joyous and elated as, it, as if celebrating the bloodshed. What? What? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to read about this one anymore. Moving on. We've got plenty to get through. That's Creeper. That's Creeper. Another one. Detroit, 508-1805. So we, let's do one more because this guy is creeping me out. Uh, the Red Dwarf. Maybe we should move on. Maybe we should move on. Oh, no. Show where... There's another one though. 1805. Nah, screw it. There's loads to get through. Right. <laughs> That's pretty creepy though. People reporting these things. Was there any more? One from 1872. Uh, James Darcy claimed that she has been in the house and Yeah, okay. Okay. Sightings. This is, okay, so there was one in 1805 in the Detroit fire. Uh, 1872, one woman named Jane Darcy claimed that she had uh, just come back from her house on Elizabeth Street from running errands when she encountered what she described as a creature with uh, blood-red eyes, long teeth, and rattling hoofs. 
lurking in a darkened room. The encounter was reportedly so shocking to Darcy that she passed out and ended up bedridden for some time. In 1884, another woman claimed to have been savagely attacked and beaten as she walked along the street at the night by a beast that looked like a baboon with a horned head, brilliant restless eyes and a devilish leer on its face. Mm. But then it carries on in the 20th century. Uh, malevolent little beasts or beasts were still up to their tricks. The creatures were sighted a few times before... Um, cited a few times before the 1967 Detroit uprising, which was one of the epidemic uh, race riots that was sweeping the nation. So, oh, okay, so this is another disaster situation. Well, like a, you know, a clashing, a clashing. Oh, yeah, there's another, there's going to be some fight, like a charge. I wonder if it's like an energy torpor. I wonder if it's like a torpor that feeds on that stuff, or maybe they're interdimensional beings. Like a you know, monster, monsters Inc. and then they're like trying to scare people to get, but maybe it's not the doing the scaring, they're just waiting to feed on it. Like in John Carter, in John Carter, if you watch that movie, it's a few years old now, it's not really much of a spoiler, but yeah, there's the baddies in there, the villains in there kind of want to hang around war and kind of, kind of want it to happen, so because they feed on it, it's just like a form of energy. I wonder then. The omens, and you hear that about banshees, you know, in the folklore, with a whale. Mm, like harbingers of, of harbingers. What's the word? Yeah, <laughs> like warnings ahead of time. <laughs> but yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so the because it was the you know they're talking about the bloodshed and he wading in it, and then you know the race riots. That's obviously going to be highly energetically charged. Talk about that magic and stuff. And uh, the psyche and... Ooh. Because in the, in, in the magic show, we found through the research, it's, it's discovered that um, with doing the testing with magic, the emotional charge seems to really... What well, kicks it off, you know. In the, in the far side, the remote viewers talk about we've got really big charge on that stuff. That's how it seems to pull these things off sometimes. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, maybe it's about um, maybe it's about that, about feeding on the bad vibes. All right, then. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to another one. Then let's get off the red dwarf and uh, let's see what else we got. Because there were, there's there's quite a few. There's quite a few. There was similar to the red dwarf actually. There's this one. As soon as they were on it, there's this one that's from. They're called the Nissi, a Nissi. They're from Scandinavia. I think it's Nisei. Or the Tomte. The Nisei and the Tomte. Or the Tomtenisi. I suppose it's like mixing them together, I guess. Or the Tom... Yeah, different spellings. But yeah, they got these here. They're like... like they kind of... I think I might have seen these. On little cute little Christmas cards and stuff. But have a look at this, look. These tiny little... like. A tiny little red pointed hat on them. Uh, so it's kind of like a Santa hat, but not. So they're kind of like gnome hats. Long red pointed hat. But yeah, the Nisi are Danish and Norwegian. It's the, the Tomte. Oh no, Nisi's Danish, Norwegian. We've got Nisi as well. Tomte for the Swedish. Finnish is Tomtu. 
Yeah, it's a mythological creature from Nordic folklore today, typically associated with winter solstice and the Christmas season. They're generally described as being short and having a long white beard and wearing a conical or knit cap like the pointed cap like the Red Dwarf. Mm. Red or some other bright colour, they often have the appearance somewhat similar to that of a garden gnome. The Nisi are one of the uh, familiar creatures of Scandinavian folklore and he has appeared in many works of Scandinavian literature. They're both similar. The points of heart and the depictions are kind of similar. I wonder in the red again. Temperament. Let's just quickly see what they were like, see if they were kind of mean there. I'll zoom in a little bit for the video. So yeah, it says for the temperament, the Nissi with a pan-Scandinavian term, it's a current Norway, oh, that's terminology. I thought they might have a... Yeah, okay, they've got a nice description of their appearance. So let's have a quick look at that. Yeah, man, small man, small like an elderly man. They're a few inches to half the height of an adult man. Okay, so they vary in size. It's a few inches to, you know, half a man. So maybe like before, maybe like talking, talking three feet-ish. Okay, there is quite a wide range though. But it says um, here that they would often have a full beard dressed in traditional farmer garb consisting of um, a full uh, woolen tunic, breeches, stockings, Hmm, it's not really saying whether or not what they like as people. Daleks, da -da -da, the high temperament. I knew I'd seen that somewhere. Despite the soul size, Nisi possesses immense strength. They're easily offended by carelessness, lack of proper respect, and lazy farmers. Okay. As a protector of the farm and a caretaker of livestock, the retributions for bad practices range from small pranks like a hard strike to the ear or the more severe punishments like the killing of livestock or the ruining of farm's fortune. Observation of traditions is thought to be the most, most important to the Nisi as they do not like change in the way things are done at their farms. They are also easily offended by rudeness, farm workers swearing, urinating in the barns or not treating the creatures well can frequently lead to a sound thrashing by <laughs> to a sound thrashing by a tomte or nisi if anyone spills something on the floor in nisi's house it considered proper to shout a warning to the tomte below okay so you've got to be really respectful of them there or they're gonna get okay they do seem <laughs> all right okay so this is serious they're serious all right then <laughs> you don't mess with them. Right, we're jumping for a, jumping for another one here then. So well, that Nisi folklore. There was a there was there was a couple here that was a bit it was a bit weird, but I think I'm just gonna skip past that and go to these Native American ones because in Native America I found that they had loads they got quite a few actually. Um Native American legends of little people. They've got 
the Mohajans believed in these ones called the Makawasug. You got the Esakasone in Canada believed in little people that lived in a hell in Nova Scotia. You've got the Shoshone. I don't know if I'm saying these tribes right, but I'll try my best. You've got the Shoshone tribe believed in little people called the Nimariga who lived in the Rocky Mountains. They used bows and poison arrows to keep trespassers away. You've got the Choctaw called them the Kwani Kosha. These people were feared and supposedly kidnapped boys to test them and figure out their nature. Mm. The Cherokee tribe believed in three different types of little people. The laurels, the rocks and the dogwoods. They range from being good and helpful to purely malicious. The crow tribe called the little people the Nirumbi. They supposedly lived in the uh, prior mountains. So yeah, I'm going to focus on just one of these stories then for I thought I'll go for the Choctaw legend. But it's uh, interestingly, it was not. This uh, the original, the first one I listed here, but a Choctaw. They called him the Kwanikosha. But in this one here, it's uh, gives a bit of a description. But I don't know if it's uh, if they're talking about a different one or the same one. But you know, I'll just uh, an article here. So yeah, let's have a look at the Native American ones then. So yeah, so we've got them in Europe, we've got in Scandinavia. We've we've got them in the. The fairyland folklore. We've got these Welsh ones called the uh, Tell. Oh, the Welsh are saying Chella Welf Teg. It's like a gen generic term for you know the sort of fairy folk in the Welsh language. But it's like it seems to be so commonplace. And they say, see how similar them two were the red dwarf from the French. But then are they getting that from Scandinavia? But then when you go into the Americas and finding they've got the same stories and all described the same, seems a bit weird, doesn't it? You know, like they've already got it the same. I know they've intertwined the stories, but that's because they match. So I don't know. Anyway, let's have a look at this, uh, see what the Native Americans are saying then. Because the Europe stuff, we've had a look at that. So let's see what they're talking like. Because they're looking a bit like like kind of guardian spirits to me. Like, you know, like they're testing the boys. Like the tribe they mentioned is testing kidnapping boys to test them to see their nature so they want to see if you're being respectful maybe it's like a sample maybe a kidnap a boy now and again see if the tribe's still being good to nature i don't know just the yeah, idea anyway little people Choctaw legend a long time ago in the ancient times uh while the Choctaw indians were living in mississippi the Choctaw legends say that there were certain supernatural beings and spirits that lived near them the spirits or little people were known as the Kawa Anukasha or forest dwellers. So like I said, I'm not sure if that's just a different spelling or whatever. But yeah, they've got the forest dwellers. These are pygmy beings that live deep in the thick of the forest. The homes were caves under the large rocks. When a boy, child is two, three or even four years old, he will often wander off into the woods, playing or chasing a small animal. When the little one is well out of sight from his home, the ah, oh, the Kwanakasha, it is the same people, who is also always on watch, seizes the boy and takes him away into his cave and or his dwelling place. Many times in this cave is 
many times his cave is far away and the Kwakakasha and the little boy must travel a very long way climbing many hills and crossing many streams when they finally reach the cave the Kwanakasha takes him aside where he, he meets uh, he's met by three other spirits all very old with long white hair ah okay so that's what i find striking about that is that that, that again like i mentioned earlier it's in passing it's like the minions working for someone else and that's like a grab to go and put you before somebody into it before some kind of panel to my mind that's how i was just imagining it just then okay so let's, let's let's go on with this article then so the first one offers the boy a knife the second one offers him a bunch of poisonous herbs and the third offers a bunch of herbs yielding good medicine if a child accepts a knife he is certain to become a bad man and may even kill his friends if he accepts the poisonous herbs he will never be able to cure or help his people but if he accepts the good herbs, he's destined to become a great doctor and an important and influential man of his tribe and win the confidence of all of his people. When he accepts the good herbs, the free spirits will let him uh, the secrets of making medicine. We'll tell, we'll tell him the secrets of making medicine from the herbs, the roots, the bark of certain trees and treating and curing various fevers, pains and other sicknesses. This is the reason the little people take the boy to their home in the wilderness in order to train Indian doctors, transmitting to them their special curative powers and to train them in the manufacture of their medicines. The child will remain with the spirits for three days after which he is returned. He does not tell where he has been or what he has seen or heard, not until he becomes a man. Will he make use of the knowledge gained from the spirits? And never will he reveal to the others how it was acquired. It is said amongst the Choctaw that few children wait to accept the offering of the good herbs from the third spirit. And that is why there are so few great doctors and other men of influence among the Choctaw. It is said that the little people are never seen by the common Choctaw. The Choctaw prophets and herb doctors, however, claim the power of seeing them and holding communication with them. During the darkest nights of all kinds of weather, you can see a strange light wandering around in the woods. This light is the Indian doctor with his little helper looking for a special herb to treat a cure for a very sick tribesman. So, hmm. Seems like initiation stuff and checking people. And although, although it's right, I get it, it's little people. It's like fun. It's like fun. But there's themes in these, there's themes in the stories. There's themes in there for me that jump out about that kind of checking people. And it's like initiation stuff. That's what I think. It sounds like that to me. And that's, that's how the spiritual stuff is passed on through initiation and testing and. You know, I'll keep talking about the, what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy, which is the, seems to be the source material for all the religions. It keeps coming back over and over again, and it's like it's like that same stuff. It's kind of got filters in there, but you got to that. It's like asking you shall receive. If you're ready for it, 
you'll see it. But if you're not, then like I say, they say in there, most, most of the kids don't even go through with the test. <laughs> they just leg it. So, but then it's hard to, it's hard, man. It's hard for a kid not to leg it in a situation like that, right? <laughs> but anyway, moving on. So that's, so yeah, I've got them in Native America. Like I say, there was loads of them. So if we just focus on that one. But then do, but then I found this other article, uh, Journal News, where it's like, well, the, the, there might be some, maybe they do exist. Or, or at least this particular one in Bugogu. So let's, let's have a look at this guy. In Bugogu. The hidden humanoid. Does Mbogogu still exist? Still. Still exists. That indicates that... We already know it exists. What is this then? Mbogogu. In his upcoming book, Between Ape and Human, an anthropologist on the trail of a hidden humanoid, Gregory Forth details how he came into the conclusion that beings, possibly of, of the species H. florensensis, known as Ubugogu continues to live on Flora's and offer, uh, offers eyewitness testimony. So he said he's seen him. Okay, so there's this some uh, humanoid that's thought to have passed away. Some hominids thought to not be him. Let's have a look. Let's just highlight that for those in the video. Right. Fourth refers to this being as a ape man, a non-sapien hominin based on the accounts of the Lao people who think it's an animal that is like human but not human. The two-hour scripted fictional feature, The Cannibal in the Jungle, presented on Animal Planet in 2015, was described as, as such. It follows the story of an American scientist who was convicted of killing and cannibalizing two colleagues in the jungle of Flores, Indonesia, in 1977 branded the American cannibal by the press during his, his trial, Dr. Timothy Darrow defended himself by claiming a mythic human ape creature was responsible for the murders. Animal Planet's dramatic story is an imaginative leap inspired by real science. In 2004, a study in journal Nature, big journal, announced the discovery of the bones of an entirely new, remarkable species of humans. Fully grown adult stood only three... It's okay, a remarkable species of new humans. They call them humans. Fully grown adults stood only three feet tall, yet they were able to thrive in the chaotic and dangerous world that surrounded them. The new species, nicknamed Hobbits, after the J.R.R. Tolkien... <laughs> Diminutive heroes. These real hobbits are real hobbits, it says in the article. <laughs> Referring to nature. These real hobbits are purported to have lived less than 20,000 years ago, which would make them the last other species, um, the last other species of human to live alongside ourselves. So they would have been the, la the last ones killed off then, in the sounds of that. Oops. Sorry about that. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. It seems that they're literally saying it's, the hobbits are kind of for real. <laughs> well, there was one a long time ago. There were hobbits.
So going back to the Moravians earlier, where there was that the oldest Protestant order in Christianity, I don't know, maybe they were... No, because they had them graves, didn't they? They were really small. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they, maybe they were folded into the church. Because the church have got these kind of people with cone heads as well. In the Catholic Church, I've seen them, some of the cone-head people. And they've got them sort of cone-head hats, aren't they? Is that to conceal it? Are these people with strange heads? So they, is it like different hominid lines from back in the day? You know? Maybe there's something different. Maybe they've got different properties. Uh, it's, it's interesting to, to think about. But moving on, I'll just finish this article off. But these hobbits fully go. Uh, but did these hobbits fully go extinct? Well, that's what I was just asking. Later, sixty minutes sent a film crew to investigate the nature article while on site in Flores. The the crew unearthed a local legend: that these creatures might not have died out at all. The Animal Planet's scripted film, *The Cannibal in the Jungle*, follows the expedition of a team into the heart of Florence to investigate Dora's claim to find out once and for all if these legendary creatures exist. Personally, I thought the overall presentation is entertaining. Da -da, that's what it's saying there. So, okay, da -da, I'm wrong to describe. Okay, all right then. Ibugogu have uh, hair-covered bodies, longish arms, big bellies, and protruding ears. They were said to walk awkwardly and could be heard murmuring in their own language, and were said to be capable of, capable of mimicking human speech. When they could tolerate the Ibu Ibugogu no more, the Flores Islanders drove the small people to the in the direction of the caves, perhaps near Langdao. Or perhaps they burned the survivors alive. In any case, the stories were probably told to keep uh, yeah, keep the children. Yeah, yeah, keep the children in in line. <laughs> you got some nice carvings there. But in the Telegraph, 2004, Richard Roberts, discoverer of the, the Hobbit, says the local tales suggest the species could still exist. When I was back in the Florence earlier this month, we heard the most amazing tales of, of uh, little hairy people whom they called the Ebugogu. Ebu meaning grandmother and gogo meaning he who eats anything. The tales contained the most fabulous details, so detailed that you'd imagine you had, there had to be a grain of truth to them. One of the village elders told us that Ebugogu ate everything raw, including vegetables, fruits, meat, and if they got a chance, even human meat. When food was served to them, they also ate the plates made of pumpkin. The original guest from hell so to speak, or heaven if you don't like washing up, <laughs> as it says there. But yeah, I mean, does it eat a lot? I don't know then. So there's another one. There's another one. So we've got some, we've got Europe, uh, Native America, sorry, uh, around the Americas, they seem to have a, this one, um, what, where's this from? We've got Africa then. We've got Europe covered. We've got the Americas. You know, quite a few. Yeah, there's another depiction here. Let's uh, just zoom in for the video there. That this one's 
Got a lot of red colouring in the artwork there. Like the red dwarf, and they've got the red hats. That that red still still coming in. So, so let's see if anything about sort of if you thought of as good or bad. I think these ones might be one of them where it's like a, you know, like say a hominid that they've not found. Maybe it's not so much like a you know a nature spirit. But it says at the bottom here that Professor Morewood said that it was the wrong man. It was the wrong said it was wrong that the team who found the remains were unable to analyze them first because there's a, a, a team went in led by um they had a oh. what a search for the bones are a, a plan the political four air four hours broken out after a leading in indonesian uh, paleontologist or paleoanthropologist with no connection to the find, last week borrowed all the delicate remains from six hobbits found in Langbur against the wishes of the local uh, locals and uh, Australian team members. Professor Tuku Jacob of Gadjar Mada University, who has challenged, who has challenged the view that the Homo florensis is a new species has previously t previously taken a skull and bones to make a, com a complete specimen a 30 year old female hobbit from the indonesian center of archaeology in jakarta where they have been kept professor morwood says that it was wrong for that the team who found the remains were not able to analyze them first it is no not good that the indonesian researchers nor the institution for Indonesian researchers, nor our institution. Yeah, because they made the find. They're supposed to get it first. You know, if you you discover you're the first person to map a star, it's not been mapped before. You get to name it. You know, the first person to discover a new compound in chemistry, they get to name it. Uh, it's kind of the rules. It's like bad form. It's not cricket, as they say. <laughs> so yeah, an example there. Academic academics grabbing, trying to. Get credit for stuff because they might find, analyze it first and find something incredible and then and then that'll overshadow the initial finding of it and then there will become a footnote in history and it won't be the big name so that's so how that stuff goes that's why we have to do the research ourselves so we can cut through it because that because something like that can cause things to get locked up and things don't get published and we don't find out about it so just making a point there anyway yeah I've got a couple more, a couple more areas I want to blast through. But I was, I, I had this idea to look for some that uh, in places in America where I know these people are. Now, as we've covered the um, those from earlier, the little people of the Priory and um, the Rocky Mountains, they kind of cover Missouri. I've got buddy there, uh, Oklahoma. I looked in that kind of area because got all that Native American ones. I thought, see if there's any in Oklahoma. I didn't find, I didn't f strictly find any um, sort of, I didn't find any little people in Oklahoma, but I thought for fun, I did find this though. I found it because I know someone who's, his kid talks about this mystery bandit that comes and I thought well, that's like, like a little person, a mystery bandit or a little orb. That's kind of like a person. So then I thought, oh, I'll check, I'll check. <laughs> Check this, and I found that there is there is the spook light in Oklahoma. I had no idea about this. 
So I thought I'd give this one a bit of a, a bit of a look at because it's kind of fun. Oh, actually, there's a, a BBC covered it. BBC covered this one actually. There's a Joplin, Missouri, uh, talking about some some mysteries there with this spook light. But I'll get the BBC article up instead. Ah, I think I've got the link wrong. Just don't seem to want to do it. Oh well. Try this. Copy paste that. Just do it manually. Shoo-ba-da-ba-ba. The hyperlink's not working. Here we go. Paste that in there. I just want to sort of prove that it gets covered in. These things get covered in a so-called mainstream reliable news. <laughs> Waiting for this to load up. Here we go. Yeah, no idea about this. Look, Route 66 glowing mystery orb. Route 67, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Route 66 glowing mystery orb. It's in this one before. It's on about the this, the spook light in Oklahoma. It's, you know, it says here the history is uh, bobbing uh, bouncing along the bobbing and bouncing along the dirt road in northwest Oklahoma, the Hornet spook light, the paranormal enigma that for more than a century has um, been described as an orange ball of light, an orb that travels east to west along a four-mile gravel road uh, long called the Devil's Promenade by the area locals. Ah, it's all this there. Let's have a look. So then I found that the BBC had covered this as well, so I thought, well, look at this one, because they might just go a bit more in-depth and do a bit more research, because they've got all that money. But let's see. <laughs> so, I mean, we haven't got any money, have we? They, got all the, all, they, they should be ashamed of themselves, in a sense. All the funding they've got and the staff. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so they're going to report. This one might be a good one, though. Thinking in recent years, they didn't report too well. Anyway, moving on. The, the, the spook light. I know it's not quite a little pe person, but I thought it was interesting because I had a mystery bandit thing. So I'm going to have a look at this. So, yeah, the four-mile stretch, Devil's Promenade, route six, uh, just off Route 66, northwest corner of Oklahoma, a paranormal mystery puzzle as a spirit seekers uh, for more than 100 years. Mysterious basketball-sized glowing orb named for the former town of Hornet as it has been appearing in the night sky here since before 18 since 1881. No one knows its peculiar smoldering ball of light signifies where it comes from or what it's composed of. Even the Army Corps of Engineers have concluded that it's a mysterious light of unknown origin. It keeps reoccurring. I mean, I'm not going to go into reading the story I'm not going to blast you know I just thought it was a weird one because I'd never heard about this and apparently it's reoccurring all the time since 1881 yeah army knows about it dinner got nothing for you I just thought that's 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 strange nice picture here from 1970 the Hornet spook light photographed in 1970 by area photographer Ed Craig remains a mystery, and it's uh, apparently it's in Ed Craig's collection at the Dobson Museum and Home Archive. So yeah, 
there's it's not quite a little person but but i thought it's got the supernatural edge to it right because it's this seem to be like you know nature spirits and stuff and then of course if you're gonna <laughs> my, si uh, my sister had an encounter where she's seen a little man and it kind of freaked her out but she said it was green and you get that old little green men thing i thought well, what does that come from the little green men sort of trope because it's like is it it became aliens didn't it not just gnomes and stuff it's you know when she says little green man i was literally talking about a man but then it becomes about oh i've seen an alien but it turns out i had a quick look into this and it says the little green men stereotype a portrayal of uh, extraterrestrials human-like creatures with green skin with sometimes with antenna on the head I thought, oh, yeah, the antenna, yeah. When, when, when as a kid, it used to be aliens have got antennas, but maybe these little green men are like the little red dwarf things with the little horny things, like antennas, you know? Kind of noticed that. I thought that was quite striking. Anyway, share this again. Yeah, so, the little green men. So where does this come from? The term is sometimes described as... Uh, for gremlins and goblins that's what we thought it was the mythical creatures and then for causing problems on airplanes mechanical devices you know gremlins okay so today the creatures are more commonly associated with alleged alien species called the greys whose skins are in fact not green but gray right during reports of flying saucers in the 50s the term little green men became popular usage uh, in reference to aliens because one classical case kelly Hopkinsville sighting in 1955, two rural Kentucky men described a supposed encounter of metallic silver objects, somewhat humanoid-looking aliens, no more than four feet in height. Employing journalistic license and deviating from the witnesses' accounts, many newspaper articles used the term little green men in writing up the story. So that's where it gets crossed over there. But then I thought, well... You know, you've got to have a look, see where these things come from. Okay, that kind of makes sense. But maybe they are interrelated. Maybe they are. That, the, you know, the, um, you've got the, you know, the, these creatures. Like the Bigfoot thing, what is that? Is that an alien? Is it a cryptid? Is it what? You know, and these things, are they earth spirits? And, of course, now we've got to the alien thing, Little Green Man. We've got the famous Dr. Stephen Gray famously made a tiny little skeleton that they found you know did a documentary you know, at what was it the uh, Atacama Desert skeleton Dr. Stephen Gray you know did a feature length for a documentary and so this is from um, the Guardian 2018 because they covered it a mummified skeleton they're saying of a baby girl found in the Chilean desert in 2003 so there's this tiny little skeleton as well but again it's got a deformed head kind of triangular shaped a little bit like um the described with you know some of the earlier folklore accounts from around the world is unusual pointy shaped head and perhaps that's the pointy hat thing as well perhaps the hat's covering the pointy head a bit like the cone heads in, in the catholic church maybe they mistake the pointy head for a hat and as well that was quite a an interesting interesting little link there they kind of go together, don't they? Sort of thing. The sort of aliens and mythical creatures, and you know, as McKenna said, maybe disguising themselves as UFOs. 
so as not to alarm us. And there's that thing of Jacques Vallée saying, passport to Magoni, it's like aliens aren't aliens. It's like the more spiritual and as in the UFOs, the way that they move. So it's to say something to think about. I find it quite enthralling to think about this stuff. And I find it especially uh, f curious and fascinating that when this stuff come out with uh, Stephen Greer doing this serious documentary, also at the same time, I found out that uh, in the 90s, Russia had one that was very, very similar. There was a Russian case that where, where this woman is supposed to have had this tiny little skeleton very, very similar to this. And, I, and I, at the time, I looked up and found the documentary. Well, you know, to see it was it was a real Russian documentary. So let's this from Russia Beyond. If you want to look these things up, say links in the description. Yeah, this is the uh, Alyoshenka and the Alyoshenka and the Kaishdim Dwarf. So alien from outer space? Question mark or mutant boy? Same sort of thing. Same kind of depiction. Real or not, say, I don't know. In the summer of 1996, a small Ural city of um, Kaishitma, 1.7 kilometers east of Moscow, witnessed a bizarre scene. A retired woman, Tamara Prosverina, was walking down the street and, and uh, she uncovered the blanket and uh, she was talking to it. She was telling us, it's my baby, short, uh, it was called uh, Alyoshenka, short for Alexei, but never showed it, the locals recall. Prosvinera actually had a son named Alexei, but he was grown up, and it was a, uh, and in 1996, he was doing time for theft, so we decided that the woman had gone nuts and was talking to a toy, thinking it was a son. And she did indeed have mental illnesses, and several months later, I had to be sent to a clinic and treated for schizophrenia, right? So the thing in the blanket, however, was not a toy, but a living creature she'd f found in the woods near a well. Okay, so the story goes, this thing was like 20, 25 centimetres tall, humanoid. A brown body, no hair, big protruding eyes, moving its tiny little lips, making squeaking sounds. According to Tamara Numova, um, Prostvirina's friend, who had seen, eyewitness have seen it in an apartment, uh, who told later, later told, Komonoskalaya Pradavada, his opinion, it was an onion shape and didn't look human at all. His mouth was red and round, and he was looking at us, said another witness. The daughter of the, um, it says, uh, Prasvinia's uh, daughter-in-law, according to her, the woman was feeding the strange baby with her cottage cheese and condensed milk. He looked sad. I felt pain while looking at him, the, the daughter-in-law recalled. So there's witnesses about this. You know, there was a documentary about it. I think, uh, you know, obviously the skeleton would have got took away, would have thought, but yeah. Accounts by local officials differ. For instance, Vyacheslav Nagoski mentioned the dwarf was hairy and had blue eyes, but Nina Yalazrina, Petrova's uh, other friend, stated he was standing near the bed with big eyes. Well, that's not that much different. Big blue eyes. One said big, one said I. Well, she didn't mention hairy. 
Others say it was hairless. Hmm. Okay. The other thing these people... The only thing these people agree on was that it looked like a real alien. Okay. That's what it says in Eroshivion. On the other hand, the testimonies of the people like Natchkovsky and uh, Glazrina are dubious. Both were drunkards. Oh, okay. I wonder who these were. Where do you get into the story? Okay. So, did, okay. So, the family saw it. And then a couple of drunken friends are making stuff up. That just kind of makes sense getting on the action. In fact, yeah. Yeah, most of her friends died of alcoholism, it says here. So, they were both were drunkards, as well as most of the uh, Prostavrina's other friends later died of alcoholism anyway. Journalist Andre Lorshak, who made a film about the dwarf, well, this is the guy who did docu the documentary then, okay, quoted the locals, perhaps uh, it was an extraterrestrial humanoid, and this case uh, made the mistake of landing in um, Christum. Sounds about true. The city with a population of 37,000 was not exactly paradise, even not taking into account local alcoholics. In 1957, um, they faced the first nuclear disaster in Soviet history. Plutonium exploded at Mayak, a nearby uh, secret nuclear power station, from 160 tons of concrete laid into the air. The third most serious nuclear accident in history behind Fukushima in 2011 and Chernobyl in 1986. The region and the atmosphere were seriously polluted. And it said sometimes uh, fishermen will catch fish that have no eyes or fins. Maybe that was a thing, then. It was deformation or something. I found it curious that it was very, very similar to the one that Stephen Gray found in the desert. And it's curious that they've got very similar shaped heads to some of the folklore stuff. And it's curious, you know, is it a, it's that thing again? Is it, is it linked to aliens? Is aliens and these folklore creatures linked to the spirit stuff and the religion stuff for the angels and gods or the elementals? It's like, there's so many questions, so many questions. But yeah, I mean, I just, I just wanted to get another show out this week. I've had this one floating in my head for a while. So I thought, let's have a... It's a fun thing, you know. Christmas Eve. Hey, little diddy people. But who knows? Who knows? My sister could have seen stuff. You know? I've seen weird stuff. I reckon my dad was a, a little bit telepathic as well. Well, Celt Celtic, we are, so... Could be in there. Got the gift. Got the sight. <laughs> could be. But yeah, keep your eyes peeled as well, because you can miss stuff. You miss stuff. People miss stuff anyway. Just walking at normal stuff, walking down the street. You know, eyewitness testimony is rubbish. <laughs> a lot of the time. So I don't know. But I think shocking things, you kind of stick in your mind, don't they? So I don't know. Something like that It'd probably stay with you. But do your research, folks. That's what I say. I always say that. That's why I put the links in as well. Always check this. Yeah, actually check this stuff out sometimes. Even just test it. I used to do that with with some people like years ago, like Alex Jones, I was testing him for ages. And they keep checking all these documents. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> I thought it was going to be crazy. But the Alex Jones was right. Jaws getting a bit fat. So do you do your homework? Do your homework. Honestly, it's good for you. Exercise your brain. Make you live longer.
Anywho, Liam Martin, another show, Little People, Exile Minds Podcast, 24th December 2022, so posterity. Half past three, we're just gone now. 3.37am for me. So, you know, you know. But yeah, I just thought I'd try and get this, uh, get another show out. Get this Little People show done. And then, uh, yep. I'll be back soon. Loads more content coming up this year. So, you take care of yourself. Uh, I might get another one out before Christmas. If not, definitely one before the new year. Take care of yourself. You know what they say. Check it for yourself. See you next time. Exile Minus Podcast, Liam Martin. Links in description, Discord, cheer and all that. Got a server. So, check it out. Put any comments about what you think about this stuff. It's always nice to know. Take it easy. Sacrifice everything.